and yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it happens and that, that's really what messed me up the most, you know, there's one yeah. guy in particular and it's, you know, ask anybody that was a hundred percent justified, but at like from the scenario at the time, but then you get up there and it's like, dude, that guy didn't have a weapon shit, you know, and, but he had something. Yeah. He had a shovel, you know, and, yeah. And we had just taken, uh, what was it, like an RPG and a bunch of small arms, and we're out looking for them. And then there's this dude, this dude we see, you know, crew running around, and that was it. And it uh, turned out to be not the case, you know. And that sat with me for, it still does, but uh, as far as like really, really taking a mental toll on you, it really sat with me wrong for a, Shit, over a decade. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Today we're visiting with Army veteran Mike Geminani. Mike, did I say your last name right? You did. You nailed it. Yeah. yeah those Italians, they like to stick extra consonants where they don't are needed. <laughs> That's right. As I said, Mike is an Army veteran and not just your run-of-the-mill Army veteran. He's and saw some fairly intense stuff in his time and but as a scout. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So I was... I'm, Actually, my MOS is 13 Fox, so I was a forward observer um, attached to a, a scout reconnaissance mm-hmm. team. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, that, that first deployment was with the scouts all, whole way through. First deployment. How yeah. many deployments? Uh, two deployments. Yeah. Second one was uh, right in Baghdad. It's like the northeast corner of the city, I believe. Or maybe not. It, it was it was kind of like the the northern section. We were right up against the river there. I'd have to look on a map. Your unit has a has a nickname. That's a longstanding nickname. And tell us about that if you can. Uh yeah. So I was assigned to the the first of the five oh second. So that's uh the strike brigade. Um, but the the nickname for for our our uh, battalion was uh, or brigade the the black hearts was was ours and that i want to say that goes all the way back to world war 2 mm-hmm. not not huge into the, all the 
all the history and the lore, I probably should be better at it. <laughs> there's there's actually a book about your unit sure, uh, from yeah. from Iraq. Uh, if you would tell us just a little bit about that. So so the book is called The Black Hearts, and it it focuses on the uh, well the the war crimes that that were perpetrated by uh, three. Well, I guess. Technically, four individuals were involved, but uh, it focuses on the three, which were the ones actually doing the act. Essentially, what it was, was these guys focused in on this young girl. I want to say she was like 13 or 14, maybe, Mm -hmm. and uh, basically came up with a plan to go and uh, rape her. And then the way they covered the rape up was by killing her whole family and burning the house to the ground. So that all went down. One of their fellow platoons came and responded to the reported murder for a while. They didn't think anything of it because murders were pretty common and they thought it was Iraqi on Iraqi murder. I think it was like a couple months or maybe a month went by where Everything was silent. You know, they had essentially gotten away with it. Mm-hmm. And then one of the, I don't, it wasn't one of the three. It was a guy who was, I think he was on radio guard. So he wasn't there with them, but he was on, at that traffic control point where they were. Essentially, he, he, can, he, he told one of his superiors, like, hey, I'm pretty sure this happened. And then that whole chain of events you know, kind of unraveled and they found out everything. It was wild because one of the guys involved in it was my old roommate when I first got to the the unit right out of basic training. Mm-hmm. Then another of the guys was actually hanging out. He was back at our base and he was hanging out in our tent with us playing Xbox. And then like the very next day, this dude gets snatched up for this atrocity, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that was bad news. I mean, attacks increased. Um, it was just a huge shit show, really. Yeah. Um, and and also just bizarre to like you, you would you never think that any of us, the quote unquote good guys, you know, yeah. would would do something like that. But you put a couple unstable dudes in a really crappy set of conditions for a year and. You know, that that's what can result. Before we get into those conditions a little bit more, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and why did you uh, enlist? So I grew up in Beloit, Wisconsin. Let's see. I, I got a brother and a sister, both younger, so I'm the oldest. Parents are both teachers. The military had always, well, really the Air Force had always fascinated me. Like I, I had all the books on the jets and the bombers and all that and, Went and toured the the Nellis Air Force Base as a kid and the the uh, Air Force Academy and the whole nine, and then learned. I don't know; it's probably more of a rumor than than actually truth. But if, if you have glasses and allergies, you can't be a fighter pilot. So I I kind of you know toss toss that dream out the window. I still was really interested in the military in general, but. Um, Went to college in uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota for one year and uh, wasted a year's worth of tuition <laughs> being an immature 18 year old. Yep. And uh, that was after that first semester where I had f- 
failed a decent number of classes, decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go talk to the recruiter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, went in there and told them I wanted to fly helicopters. And they're like, well, you, you need a bachelor's degree is what was the line I was given, you know, whether, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and whether that was true or not, I don't think it was, but so then the guy that my recruiter was uh, from the 82nd had his Ranger tab and all that. And so he's yeah. like, let me show you these videos. And uh, then we started going down the combat arms list and uh, learned about what a forward observer was. And that sounded really cool. You know, if I can't fly them, at least I can, uh, you know, talk to the aircraft and yeah. tell them where to drop bombs and all that. Um, so, yeah, then I enlisted into the delayed entry program. You know, my parents were, were a little freaked out. My dad went and uh, tracked down one of his former students who was actually in Operation Anaconda with the 101st, you know, right right during the uh, invasion of Afghanistan there back in 01. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or maybe that was early 02, I don't remember. But um, he was just fresh out of the Army when I was enlisting. And so my dad sat me down with him. And then it was... It was weird because he was in the 101st. He was, he had the same job. He was a forward observer also. And I had never met the guy before. So it was, it was really neat how that lined up and everything he was showing me, which looking back on it was probably to wave me off of doing this a little bit. Yeah. Just sold me on it even more. And at the end of that school year, I went to basic training. Basic training was in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And for, for us, it was OSIT, one station unit training. So we had basic training. And then the day you graduate basic training, that next morning, you hop on a bus and you're, you're going to your advanced training. Yeah. I definitely went into basic training with the wrong mindset. I was thinking basic training will get you strong and get you in shape. And, uh, that's really not the case. It's more to get you to standard is is all it is. Right. And, uh, so basic training was like a scramble to meet the pushups was the one that, that I was (laughs) freaked out about at at first, but, uh, got through that. And then, uh, yeah, graduated, uh, OSET and then, yeah, went directly to Fort Campbell with the, the 101st. How old were you? Uh, when I enlisted, I was 19. When you got into Iraq, you were? I would have been 20, yeah, 20, because I turned 21 when I was in Iraq. Yeah. 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 Normally, I guess we'd maybe look at that as kind of a development time. You mentioned going to college and <laughs> you kind of find yourself. You You had to find yourself in a hurry. And that job you had, the forward observer, you weren't chasing around with – um with a hundred guys at a time you were no you were out yep yeah and it was uh you know it was it was a small group it was typically between six to eight guys mm-hmm. and at first we were you know convoying around and three humvee convoys zipping around like the the way our area the mamadia is where we we were based and mm-hmm. if if you make a triangle with it you've got mamadia Yusufia and Ludafia, and we were stationed at Mamadia was the bigger of the bases. Mm-hmm. And then we had Bravo Company in Yusufia and Charlie Company in Ludafia. Yeah, Triangle. Uh, there's a nickname for that triangle. Too, there sure there? is. Yeah. The uh, the triangle of death is what uh, CNN likes to call it. Well, really, everyone's referring to it. 
And uh, essentially what that is, is after the, so during the invasion, U.S. forces really hit the big cities, Mm -hmm. you know, and and cleared them here, Fallujah and Baghdad, all those. Well, then AQI and, you know, whatever other insurgent groups there were, they all left the big cities where there were the, there were these huge U.S. you know presences, and then went into the rural areas, which is what Mamadia and these other towns were. Yeah. So when when we got there, we relieved a it was either a reserve or a national guard unit, and um, the, these guys just it, I, I felt bad for them. I mean, not that we were like these. You know, not like we were a ranger battalion or anything, but I mean, we were full time. This is what we had yeah. trained a year for. And these these poor guys, man, they just that they weren't equipped for it. And it's no fault of their own. Like those guys were awesome, but they just weren't they, they were kind of set up for failure, in my opinion, putting them in yeah. an area like that. So they were there just basically surviving. So when we took over, um, you know, they're, they're they weren't really equipped to do a ton of presence patrols and you know, yeah. route clearance. So there were IEDs everywhere and real quick, like, man, I remember after we flew in there in the Chinooks and got in there, like within the first couple of days, we were doing our first, you know, left and right seat ride patrols during the handoff. So it was mostly leadership that was going out on these within that first week, they hit a massive IED and like blew the front end off of their Humvee. Luckily, nobody was, nobody was hurt from that, but um, that was a big wake up call. Like, oh shit, man, that's, that's not even like a week and that happened. Yeah. And we got a whole year of this, you know, and yeah, yeah. That pretty much set the tone for IEDs. I mean, it, it was God every, daily almost. It seemed like somebody in our area was getting hit by an IED and most of them, like there, there were bad ones, but a lot of them, we, we would call them like MRE bombs. Like they were small. They would, they would crack windows and, blow a tire out or something but they weren't these catastrophic ones like you hear about later on in the war you might have come under fire Uh, oh sure yeah a a fair bit of um incoming so there there'd be uh the couple mortar rounds you know getting lobbed in and more common we would we had counter battery there so our our tents were just a couple uh couple tent rows back from the uh the gun line. So we had three 105 howitzers for our artillery battery on base. And that, that, I mean, it, it was pretty, pretty regular where that the FTC, the fire direction control, those, those guys would pick up incoming rounds, plot a back azimuth to where they originated. And that gun line would be turning and tossing six howitzer shells their way. And uh, yeah, that that was, I won't say it was every day, but it, it was it was pretty frequent that that would happen. Yeah, and as a forward observer, I'm suspecting you might have used those howitzers yourself. Oh once yeah, or twice. I, uh, you know, at, at first not so much because when we got attached to the scouts, that that hadn't really been done before. Um, so there there was definitely well, at first there's there's the the st- I mean we were we were pogues, you know, we weren't the uh, we weren't infantry and then we surely weren't scouts, you know, and then, uh, you know, you can't, you had to earn your, earn your keep there. But, um, once, once they saw what, what we could do and kind of got to know us and 
built that trust a little bit and we started using the the mortars and the the artillery and yeah they 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 technically knew how to you know call for fire when they went through their expert infantryman badges course where which was us training them how to do it anyway yeah um but knowing how to do it and testing out doing it is one thing but the the proficiency that we had was was just a different different ball game yeah artillery i used quite a bit but the what i used the most were the 60 millimeter mortars because they they had such a low they they wouldn't break all the different levels of airspace going up and coming down mm-hmm. so you didn't you didn't need many levels of approval to to use those so i would get approval from like the company i believe it was the company yeah so when we were out and we had mortars if we started um you know taking fire from some reed line from a couple idiots you know like it, it wasn't anything to get mortars on there within less than a minute and you're not yeah. you're not calling you know asking for permission to do this and if if you're if you got any air in the area that you got to watch out for and yeah. uh, so they were real responsive i mean they they don't do a huge huge amount of damage but uh you start throwing those downrange and it it kind of changes the tune real quick i don't i barely know how to ask this as things progress, you don't necessarily have trouble calling those in on the bad guys. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's not always the bad guys that, that are in the way. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, with mortars and artillery, it was it, it was pretty clear cut. Like, yeah. you, very rarely were you even allowed to call, like, if if it was a house, like you, you weren't dropping artillery rounds on a house because right. you don't know what's inside there. Although there was one time where it, it was, it was a rooftop and it, it, it wasn't even my skill that did it. Like, cause the, the mortar rounds are, it's, it's an area effect deal. Yeah. But one of them did land inside the, the little rooftop, uh, short wall. I, I get what you're saying with the, uh, you know, collateral damage and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was, that was more with small arms, I think, is where where that was encountered more. And and yeah, I mean, it's uh, it happens, and that that's really what messed me up the most. You know, there's one yeah. guy in particular, and it's you know, I'd ask anybody that was a hundred percent justified, but at like from the scenario at the time. But then you get up there, and it's like, dude, that guy didn't have a weapon shit you know but he had something yeah he had a shovel you know and and we had just taken uh what what was it like an rpg and a bunch of small arms and we're out looking for him and then there's this dude this dude we see you know crew running around and that was it and it uh turned out to be not the case you know and that sat with me for it still does but uh as far as like really really taking a mental toll on you really sat with me wrong for a shit over a decade. You got out of the service. How was everything feeling after so, what was it? Five years? Uh, almost. It was like yeah. four and a half. Yeah. Uh, so I was only in for a stint of four and then I got to experience the, uh, the amazing privilege of being stop lost for a half a year. <laughs> so, so uncle Sam got that extra 
extra five months out of me. When I was getting out, kind of fast forward a little bit. So that was all from my first tour, which was the real wild one. The second tour for me personally wasn't all that eventful because we were stationed in Baghdad. So forward observers, you weren't calling in any indirect fire in a metro, you know, metropolitan area like that. So essentially me and a couple other guys got relegated to uh, watching and coordinating all the different ISR platforms. So all the different UAV feeds and crap like that. So we basically became uh, desk jockey aircraft controllers for, you know, the different UAVs, which really sucked for me because that meant I got to sit and watch on a TV all of my buddies who I had trained with for the, and, and fought with for almost three years go out and do the job. And I'm sitting here just twiddling my thumbs with nothing to do, you know, except to watch when an IED would go off or watch and hear when somebody would get injured or killed and you'd hear it over the radio. And then we were right next to the the cache. So you'd hear them come in and screaming, you know, and that to me was the worst of the two deployments, even though it, I wasn't involved in a single firefight or, I mean, we took a couple rounds of indirect and that was it for the entire deployment. And it wasn't even by where I was being powerless, you know, to really do anything. The reason I bring that up is because when I got back stateside, that deployment really soured my mood. Like after the first deployment, I was, I I was looking to to reenlist. Like I, I, at that point I was considering like a, a flight packet, you know, and yeah. if I was going to do that and kind of weighing a whole bunch of different options, see what I wanted to do. And then, uh, you know, needs of the army kind of came crashing down and right. didn't end up working out that way. But uh, so when I got back from the second deployment, I had a pretty big chip on my shoulder, admittedly, and basically said, you know, F this, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. Um, when I got out of the army, I was, I was ready. Like I I wanted nothing to do with the place. Looking back on it, I kind of had a a skewed view because I had only been at the 101st at that one unit for the entire four and a half years. Uh So I really hadn't experienced anything else in the military, you know? So part of me now looking back is like, man, did you, you didn't really get the, a full sampling of what, what that was like. But so when I, when I got out, uh, you go through like the, they call it career counseling or whatever, whatever the acronym is for that. Basically, they just want to make sure you're not getting out and going to be a deadbeat, right? And yeah. so I was planning on going back to school. I remember the the career counselor telling me, well, that's great because uh, there's no civilian equivalent right. to anything you did in the military. And don't try being a cop because they don't, they don't like hiring combat arms guys, And uh, which makes perfect sense. I would never want to do that that job not in a million years especially now so i i got out in february and moved back in with my parents and then picked up my old uh job when i was in high school i used to intern for the school district's technology department and uh so i got a buddy of mine got me a job back there and worked with worked for the school district basically killing time until the fall semester started and then moved up to lacrosse and and went to school got married along uh, the way yep. <laughs> yeah so <laughs> went went there and met my wife the f- 
first year, I think. Yeah, the first year I was at school, um, she had just finished college and was uh, substitute teaching. I was going to school for uh, biomedical electronics and got a really sweet paid internship with GE, which shout out to those guys because they they had a huge veteran program to to hire vets and then started job searching anywhere in the country, you know, for that first foot in the door job. First job was out in uh, central Washington, Washington state. So yeah. it was a little bit of a journey. We we drove out there and my, my new wife was like three months pregnant with our, our oldest. So yeah. we were, we were making all the big milestones that year. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was stressful, but, um, you have a house full of daughters, don't you? Yep. Yeah. I have three girls, which is great. Like a lot of people were early on, were asking me, Oh, you're going to try for that boy. And it's like, well, it, one, I, I know the odds, like that's not going to happen. Yep. <laughs> and, and two, I, I didn't, I don't know my, my daughters, they, they like doing anything. So like, I yeah. they'll go hunting with me fishing, you know, so I, I don't really get the, the urge or feel like I'm missing out by having all girls. Honestly, it's kind of nice. I, I enjoy it. Like I, I wouldn't trade <laughs> it. When you got out, you, they had the career counseling. Mm-hmm. Did you do a, a psychological uh, evaluation kind of thing? Did they do that with you then or not? Not in the military. Like you went through all your medical appointments to make mm-hmm. sure you weren't exiting the military injured. That was more physical. Uh, there must have been some kind of questionnaire, yeah. but it, it wasn't much. I know that. And even like after my first deployment, like that, looking back on it, that's kind of where some of, some of the issues first started to rise up. Like I, I remember getting sent to anger management, you know, for swinging on a guy in formation because he was, you know, dicking around and yep. totally not called for, but that that's what happened. And even when, talking to the the shrink or whatever they they tell you like if if you if you tell them and th- none of this is like above board this is just what you hear you know it's like yeah. if you tell them what if you tell them this or answer this question that way like you're not going to do this job anymore yeah so the entire time you're in and just going to sick call in general was really frowned upon like you you were a dirtbag if you were unless you were like bleeding or something was broken, like going there was you trying to get out of something is how it was perceived. The promotion of self-care was not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there really wasn't like a, an, an offboarding process mental health mm-hmm. wise for, for guys. Um, yeah. I, they told you, you know, if you, if you have any issues, go see the VA, they'll take great care of you is what you're, what you're told. Yeah. Which that that's a whole, whole nother podcast. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> did things kind of catch up with you all at once or did uh, things build up with you and get a little anger going and how, how did things go in your transition? Yeah. So for me, it was not all at once and it was not right when I got out, like looking back on it, I was definitely drinking a crap ton But from what I remember, it was more just like going to parties and having a good time and living it up until school where I knew I'd be, you know, buckling down on schoolwork. I had a few 
I guess, episodes you'd call them. Like I remember one time when I was dating my wife, we were driving to a friend's house and for whatever reason, I didn't want to go. And then I was, I, there was the first like zero to a million anger wise. And then from anger to me bawling in the car, not knowing why, you know, yep. and just not being able to articulate why I'm upset, but I'm upset and we are not going to this party. There were a couple of those, but it was, it was very infrequent from what I remember. And it stayed that way until my first job. So when I was with GE out in Washington state, looking back on it, it was, I was keeping my mind so busy yep. that there wasn't room to think about that. At first it was going full tilt into school, trying to graduate early, get this job, get, get going. Cause the whole time I felt like I was coming into this five years behind all my peers. Cause all my classmates from high school were graduated college, had jobs. Yeah. And here I am starting essentially from square one as a high school student. Yeah. Um, you, you had a mission. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Another yeah, mission. Was, that, yeah. I mean, I was full all into that maxing out my course load, taking extra internships, um, staying extremely busy and working, you know. And then that once I got the job with GE, I was all in on that. Like I'm this brand new guy. I need to, I mean, I was, I got hired to fix MRI and CT scanners and I was fresh out of a tech school. So it's like I, the learning curve was immense. Yeah. So I was super busy with that. And I had a new brand new daughter and I was a dad and a new husband, you know, it was all these things. So I was super busy. Once all of that started to throttle down, then all that stuff started to creep in. And for me, all that stuff was depression. That would, that would start to creep in. And mine was like a, a really awesome cocktail of depression and anger. And it would, it, I would just go down this slope. It'd be depressed, 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 and then wouldn't want to do anything. My, my wife would go out with our daughter and do something. I'd stay at home and just, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even do anything. Like I'd just stare at the TV and it'd be off. I wouldn't, wouldn't even want to watch anything, nothing. And then. Yeah. And then, and then like my wife would ask me what's going on and trying to help, like she cared. And then that would get me pissed off. And so then I'm lashing out at like literally the one person who's there to help me. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just this vicious cycle of depression and anger, anger, depression. That cycle would start to happen. But also when I started to feel comfortable in a job where that would start to happen, Mm -hmm. I would also in, in at work, I would start to get pissed off at, you know, all the little BS that happens at work at every yeah. job. And yeah. then it was like a two year cycle. I would, I would spin up and get really good at, or, you know, proficient at whatever that job was. And then I would start to get angry at the job and not wanting to be there anymore. And so then I'd look yeah. for another job and it was like a two to three year cycle that I would just job hop, you know, Mm-hmm. And while, when I got the new job, you know, the depression and all that kind of went away. Cause then I was, you really had busy mission. Yep, new mission, gotta, gotta get good at this new role. Yep. And, uh, same thing at home. Like I would, 
I would constantly be having all these different projects going on and just to stay busy. And it wasn't really a conscious decision like, oh, I need to stay busy or else I'll get, you know, depressed. Yeah. It just kind of happened that way. And now looking back on it, I see like that's exactly what that was, is me trying to avoid that. I talked to my first counselor about five years after I got out of the military. And this was a civilian counselor, but her husband was a Vietnam vet. So she kind of got it, you know, and uh, talked to her for a while. She introduced me to EMDR therapy, which, which helped Um, what wasn't helping though. And this was the theme for the next like four years of on and off therapy was I wasn't being honest with the therapist. So you can imagine the therapy didn't work. You weren't getting any better because I was telling her all this superficial BS going on and I didn't want to talk about the hard stuff because I was disgusted with myself for, you know, and the, the main one was, was that guy that, you know, we shouldn't have killed. Right. Right. And was talking with her for a few months right about then is when I took another job and we moved back to Wisconsin, stopped going to counseling and Mm -hmm. figured, I don't, I don't think I really need to go to counseling. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good because the new job, new mission and the same cycle repeated itself and it got really bad, like to the point where, I mean, I mean, my wife is awesome because she's, she's stuck out a lot of shit, you know, that, uh, yep. And we got to the point where it was almost a divorce and uh, decided to go see a marriage counselor. And that that's where some things really turned for me, because that was the first time we uh, we got linked up with a counselor at the vet center in Milwaukee. I'd never heard of the vet center before. Anyone listening, if you want solid counseling and you're a combat veteran, that's where you go and they will hook you up. So we were seeing... Uh, one counselor there for our couples counseling. And then I was separately seeing another counselor. And it was during my individual sessions with that counselor where I first heard the term moral injury, which was, was real, real new, a real new term that fit me to a T because like, yeah, I was having these PTSD symptoms, but not all of them. Right. Like I wasn't having nightmares I would have dreams of, of the military, but it wasn't like the ones that were keeping me up or, right. you know, right. messing my sleep up. And I wasn't jumpy around loud noises, that kind of thing. I didn't like yeah. crowds. So it was like, I was kind of half and half. And in my mind, it's like, you don't really have it if you don't have all the symptoms, which isn't the right way of thinking of it either. Mm-hmm. But then when she started describing to me what moral injury was and where it's, it's essentially really almost mirroring the symptoms of PTSD, but uh, essentially you, you did something that went so far against your core moral values as a person that that's, what's messing you up. And that, that really fit me to a T. It's kind of an ironic thing. When you think about it, you're trained to do things that a normal mind wouldn't be doing necessarily. Sure. And that, and that training works extremely well. Yeah. And, and uh, for good reason. 
It does. Oh, absolutely. For good reason. I mean, the, I still remember the first firefight and it's like total panic. Like, even though like the training kicked in, but there, there was a few moments where it was like freeze. I, I can't even think like, yeah. and, and it, it took my sergeant to like, kind of snapped me out of like, Hey, get on the radio, do this, go here. And then after that, it was fine. And then the second and third and fourth time it happened, it, it was not like that at all. It was then the training kicked in. Um, so it's absolutely necessary. And I don't begrudge the military for doing that at all. I think that's only one half of the, the picture. Like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta desensitize guys to this. You, you gotta really wind them up for this very specific jacked up task. Yep. But on the tail end, you, you need a mechanism in place to wind them back down. And they speak about reintegration, but that is not what yep. happens. At least when I was in, it wasn't. Maybe they're way better about it. I don't think they are still, but, and, and I get it. Like they, they have a job to do with finite resources that that's a really long process for people. Yep. So I don't know how they can feasibly do it. Honestly, I don't have the answer. You'll work through your moral injury issue or, or understood yeah. it, came to understand it at least. Yeah, came to understand it. And honestly, just being able to put a name to it that fit what I was going through helped yeah. a lot. And because now you, now you have a thing, you have a, a tangible thing that now you, you can tackle this thing. Because before it's like, okay, I have all this depression that's not making sense why that's happening, all this anger that's not yeah. making sense. There wasn't a specific trigger that would pee it off. It would just randomly happen. So it's like fighting a ghost. But once I had a name for it, it's like, okay, now I, I see you and I'm now we're going to work on this. Yeah. Talking with my counselor at the vet center, that, that helped, but it, it only helped to a point, right? Like it, mm -hmm. there, there was still this extreme self-loathing. And like my girls would hug me and I, that, that was the worst part was they looked at me like I was this can do no wrong, perfect person that they looked up to. And in my mind, when they would say, I love you, I would say, if, if only you knew, you know, and yeah. like, what a big piece of shit I am. And which obviously not true, but that, that's, that was yeah. the second half of the sentence. They would say, I love you. And in my head, you'd be like, oh, I, A, you have no idea who you're saying you're loving right now. And B, the terror of them eventually finding out. Cause I'm, I'm big on not keeping stuff for my girls, like age appropriate, right? Like I'm right. not, I haven't filled them in on everything I do, right. but like I don't keep it a secret that dad goes to counseling, that dad yep. is working on things from the army and when they're old enough and it's they're they're old enough to hear it like i'll absolutely tell them because and now for more than just the reason of i want to stay straight up with my kids but also like don't hide that shit because it, it, it could kill you which that's kind of where this next turn is going is that depression piece mm -hmm. ended up getting bad to the point where one day i'm sitting in the basement with my pistol in my hand and like if it wasn't for one thought like that would have happened and and it was a really clinical thought like i wasn't scared about it 
uh, nothing. It just popped in my head like, yeah, if you do this, you're really going to mess those kids up. And there was no emotion attached to it. And it was almost robotic. And then I just put the gun down and walked upstairs and fessed up to my wife about what was about to happen. And of course, you know, she freaks out because I had been keeping all that inside. Like she, the kind of the, the thing we had worked out was when Mike's in depression, anger mode, just leave him alone because that, that put a barrier between us where I wasn't saying something I would absolutely regret in a half hour. Looking back on it, that wasn't probably wasn't the smartest move either because it left a great opportunity for me to be alone at a dangerous point. You know, yeah. when I went up there and told her what had happened, I gave up. Like I was like, I'm, I'm done hiding this shit. And, uh, I, uh, you know, she, she called her cousin and her cousin's, uh, a counselor. She's like, well, we want to take the guns out of the house. And I was like, yeah, sure. Go for it. And in my head, I'm like, that's, that's totally for your comfort. That's not for my safety. Cause it's like, yeah, there are other ways there's, oh yeah. Like if you're going to do it, you're going to do it, you know? And, but I, I, I was honoring more, more their wishes than anything with mm-hmm. that. Right. So I was, I didn't put up a fight with it here. Here's all the guns here. And, uh, so we got all the guns out of the house and, uh, that made for a little weird hunting trip. Cause, uh, <laughs> I, I still kept my bow because I was like, listen, there's there's no way I can thwack myself in the head with a broadhead with this. Like it, <laughs> we can I can at least go bow hunting. But uh yeah. anyway. And so then I did another round of counseling and right around there was a uh a veterans retreat that I went to. It it it's not called this anymore. At the time it was the Lone Survivor Foundation, uh Marcus Latrell Foundation. And I think it's since been rebranded to uh, Red Wings or something like that. I don't know. I don't know if my wife applied to it or I did. I, I don't remember. Anyway, they I got a slot and I went down to North Carolina. It was a really nice like house on a private lot. And uh, it was eight veterans and then two facilitators, a, like a yoga instructor, two counselors. They had a chef there. And it was basically a uh, a buffet of alternative therapies. So like, yeah. it, it was like four or five days, I think it was four days long. And during the day, you would have these hour or two hour blocks of instruction, whether it's this kind of meditation or this kind of breath work or acupuncture or, you know, mindfulness and all all these different non-prescribable VA thing, you know, modalities that oddly enough, those are all the ones that I found more relief from than the God. I, I know I'm not remembering this right, but it's over a dozen different meds that I had cycled through and tried through the VA trying to trying to fix it with medicine, which it doesn't, I'm not saying there's not a place for medicine. Like there for sure is, right. but right. Um, it, it, what it will not fix you. I, I don't think at least for me, it wasn't fixing me. 
what what I found there that worked that I that I got the most benefit out of was the yoga and it wasn't it wasn't like the yoga pants kind of yoga they they called it battlefield yoga is what it was and it, I mean it's yoga poses and different stretching and stuff but delivered in a way where it doesn't feel like this woo woo I don't know like a yoga pants yoga studio would I guess <laughs> um essentially taking care of your body eating eating better um exercise like those things really really helped the tricky thing with all those is when you're depressed you don't want to do any of that right so trying to bridge that gap is extremely tough Oh, and, and art therapy, not, not the, not like art, but, oh, what is it? Accelerated resolution therapy, I think is what that stands for. Okay. Um, it's kind of like EMDR, but, uh, you're basically like almost rewriting a traumatic event in your head. Yep. And, uh, that was really helpful for me too. So I got a lot of nice tools out of that, but, um, still was struggling with the depression and the anger and, by proxy, my wife was struggling with my anger and depression, you know, and make that just carving a huge rift in her marriage, you know. And then I had taken another job this time with the VA in, in IT and we had moved. So a bunch of big changes. So you're, you know, not thinking about things and same, same, like there's a pattern here with me, right? <laughs> Take a new job. Things will be good. And then now we go. Yep. yep. Sure enough, after almost a, a year at the VA and you're you're out of your probationary status and like real comfortable in the job, same thing, starting to get real real pissed off at the, the VA at our situation and just everything. You know, my wife's on really sensitive now to like, okay, is he gonna kill himself? Yep. And I remember being on the phone with her. I just walked out of work. Like I was fed up with it for, I don't even remember the reason. And I get, I'm on the phone with her and I get into the car and I slam the door shut and she starts screaming my name, like freaking out. She thought it was a gunshot. Like that's, that's how keyed up she had been over this whole thing. It wasn't a couple days later. She, she sends me a link to a organization called veterans of war and this is something I had never even considered, but what they do, there's a couple other organizations, but they sponsor veterans and take them down out of the country to do a ayahuasca retreat. So psychedelics, this was another one where it's like, all right, whatever, I don't care. I'll fill this out and submit it. And man, did if the stars really aligned on that one, because I get a call like the next day or two days later from the director of that. And he's like, he asked me, you know, some questions and he's like, okay, uh, do you have a passport? And I was like, yeah, I got my passport. And he's like, well, um, we had somebody drop because of medical reasons. So if you can come up with the money for a plane ticket to get down to Costa Rica, you can come with. And so my parents, they, they hooked me up and bought the ticket and I was going and why I say the stars aligned is because once I joined that group and there's a whole like two month prep work, like integrate, there's, there's counseling that goes into that in the beginning. 
And I'm finding out from the guys that these dudes have all been on the waiting list for like over a year to go. And I jump in and I'm going in like a month, you know, and uh, went down there, did the four rounds of that stuff, which it is disgusting and (laughs) not fun. But uh, the first night I had this huge breakthrough moment. And by the end of it, that, that dude that, we had killed that had the shovel. Like I was at peace with that whole situation and still remember it all still think about it, but the negative self-loathing and all that gone. And so then the cynic in me is like, okay, well, how long is this going to last? This is just the drugs. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's not the case. That was over a year ago now. And those effects have stuck. And I, I mean, at this point I'm, I'm confident that's a permanent thing. And then the same thing with, uh, you know, how I viewed my relationship with my daughters, you know, and now I can be present with them. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, enjoy their love, you know, and, and not feel like a fraud about it. Yep. I'm convinced out of all the different things I've tried and all the medications and all that veterans of war and that, that retreat, saved my life hundred percent. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, that should be like the, the exit strategy for every single combat veteran, any veteran, you know, cause you don't have to go to combat to, to see jacked up stuff. You know, it's yep. military is a dangerous gig, no matter what you do. And, yeah. uh, that, that should at least be offered like, Hey, you're dealing with it. Here's, here's a free, uh, free pass. Um, unfortunately there's a lot of legislation that needs to happen to allow that to be legal in the States, but yep. anger is still a big struggle of mine. That's, that's kind of like my new, my new target thing that I'm going after, but journaling has really, really helped, especially with the anger. Like if yeah. you can, for me anyway, if I, if I have the presence of mind to just not react in that moment, which man, is that easier said than done, but indeed it is. And then take everything you're about to say and put that to paper. Yep. And then by the end of that, like you, you just feel it bleed away. Yep. Granted, I say that like I'm a pro at it. I, <laughs> I am hang around me. Sure. I'll make you a pro at it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work to do yet. It is. It is. That's something else that I've learned is don't look at it like you're trying to fix yourself, right? Yeah. Because that implies that there's an end state where you're 100% good. And I don't think that's attainable. And maybe it is, but I don't think you should shoot for that as the goal because it's going to be so easy to fall short of that. Yeah. And then you're just going to kick off that cycle again of, oh, I, I failed. I didn't, I'm, I'm going to be this way forever. Well, if the goal isn't to not be that way and just to manage being that way, that's a different ball game, right? Right. Right. Mike, we talk a lot about reaching up. Did you stay in touch with, uh, the guys from Iraq or how did um, that, how has that gone for you? At first, not really. Like occasional touch points you'd, you'd hear from somebody or talk to somebody. I really distanced myself and like shut down social media contacts because what it turned out, like it was like 
man, like clockwork, every year Memorial Day, I'd fire up Facebook and learn through somebody else's post that another one of my buddies killed themselves or OD'd or got killed while they were overseas. And it was never good news. So I just stopped watching. Didn't stop them from happening. So no, I, I have reached out to a couple guys, especially after that Veterans of War retreat and started talking to one and he's like, Oh yeah, man, I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of that same stuff. And at first I got really mad because I'm like, damn it, dude. Like, yeah. So am I like, we could have been talking about this, you know, we're boys, yep. we, should... but both of us, and I was equally to blame. Like, even though I was the right. one that was mad, it's like, well, I wasn't reaching out to him either. Yep. And, uh, I wasn't reaching out to anybody. Like the only person that knew was my wife. And like my, she, she reached out to my parents a couple times and I would minimize it. Like, ah, she's overreacting. I'm not, it's fine. I'm fine. You know, that was my classic response. I'm fine. I'm good. I put up a great front, you know, until I didn't don't do that. That's, that is the, don't be ashamed of it. Like, I know that's easier said than done. Cause I mean, that that's still something I work through it doesn't feel good to know that there's something that you're struggling with or you feel broken, you know, and it, it's, it, especially for someone who's been wired for so long to suck it up and to be the reliable one to admit that you're dealing with something that makes you pretty unreliable is not something to do. And yeah, I imagine it came as I not imagine, I know it came as a huge shock when, uh, after the whole, I guess, I don't know if you call it attempted suicide or whatever it was, but when that whole incident happened and I fessed up and told my parents, like, there was definitely a shock value there. Like, they had no idea it was that bad. Yeah. And, and, and they would, they shouldn't because I wasn't telling them. Right. But that whole nobody gets it thing, that's real. Thank God they don't get it. Right. Cause that would right. mean. That that would mean we're, our our world's a way worse place, but man, if you can find somebody who they don't even have to have been deployed, right? Just somebody who was, I think, being talking to someone who was at least in the military, because that 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 removes all of the well, what's that acronym mean, or what's yep. what's that terminology yep. mean? Like all of that's removed, and now you can kind of get down to business. Exactly. We put a lot on our spouses, don't we, Mike? They carry a, a burden for sure. They carry a burden. And like, if you look at it, how how many resources did I just rattle off throughout this podcast that were available to me, right? Like there, And there's tons more that I haven't talked about. Yeah. There are almost none for spouses. Like the yeah. VA is there for the veteran. The vet center is pretty good. Like they're there for the veteran and their family. Yep. But the vet, the vet center spread thin too, yep. you know, they're, and that's, that's the only resource aside from like nonprofits, you know, and maybe some volunteer groups, there's really nothing there for the spouses yep. and, and which, which sucks because they're the ones that catch it in the, on the chin every single day, yeah. you know, every outburst, every, every episode, they're the ones feeling the brunt of it. And they're, they're the target of it too, because and it's it's a it's a t- sick twisted illness or whatever you want to call it, but you're desperately 
crying out for this to stop yeah. and for and for it to get better and to get help. And there's the person who will be helping you, and that's who you're targeting. Like yep. it makes no sense. Yep. And so it's no surprise that there's the divorce rates through the roof, you know, right. for veterans. And I don't know. I'm extremely lucky. She she's here for keeps, you know, which is which is awesome. Yep. But uh yeah, I haven't been easy to just to be around, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I've heard the term in my own household, uh what about me? Yep. That hits you hard, knowing you deserve something too. Yep. Well, that was a struggle for me coming coming back from Costa Rica because like I come back, I had all these huge breakthroughs feeling like, all right, I finally broke past this yeah. unsolvable barrier, right? And I'm ready to start living life for a while, totally missed it. But it's like, okay, that's great that that's how I'm feeling. But she hasn't had any of those breakthrough experiences. Like, right. I mean, I'll, I'll call it like 10 years of therapy in four days, you know, and not that she's behind, but in a sense, yeah. Like, yep. and, and, and she doesn't have that, I, I guess that, uh, that magic potion to, to yeah. speed her along either. And, yeah. and with minimal, she has to recover too with minimal resources. Yep. And it's not like I'm, I won't say I'm not, I'm, I, I am probably out of the woods, but it's like there's, there's still work to be done there too. Yeah. yeah. So I would say they almost have it tougher. In, than, in uh, that way they might. Yeah. The guy. yeah. Yeah. Or not the guy, the veteran, but veteran. Yep. Well, Mike, we'll all keep working on it, won't we? That's the plan. As always, uh, we remind you all that this is the stigma free vet zone. And that actually came up as part of your discussion that that stigma is there. And so often the stigma is put upon ourselves too, that we yep. worry about that. 100%. Thanks again, Mike. That's Mike Geminani from Southwest Wisconsin with another edition of Stigma Free Vet Zone. As always, I'm going to remind you all, if you find yourself in a mental crisis, please pick up that phone and call 988 and hit prompt one. Thank you for joining us. I'm Scott Schultz. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.